Please thank you all for praying for me. Oh, I'm so loud today. Um, anyway, thank you for your prayers. I really appreciate it. About four o'clock yesterday afternoon, I'm like, I don't know that I'll be here today. So I'm thankful that the migraine is gone. I'm thankful to be here, and I know that you prayed. So thank you very much for that. Let's open in a word of prayer, and we will dig into the minor prophets. Lord, we thank you so much for the, how you are revealed in the minor prophets. Probably territory we don't often um, study, but is so rich and so deep and there's so much to be mined out of it about your character about your plan for the world about your plan for the nations about who we need to be in light of who you are and i pray that you would enable me to speak your words today to cover um, exactly what you want said about these texts and these prophets and that we would leave changed people let me pray this in christ's name amen so today as we start the prophets I just, again, because of having the migraine and different health problems, I was very thankful for lectures that are online um, from Dr. Abner Chow. He's taught through the Minor Prophets, and he had a great summary of all of these prophets. And today, I just view myself as a conduit where I'm going to pass along what I learned from him to you. Paul says that in um, the New Testament. He says to Timothy, you know, what you've learned from faithful men and trust to others. And I'm really thankful for the scholarship I could lean on because of my health limitations. So I just want to give a lot of credit to Dr. Chow at the beginning because I'm really going to be pulling a lot from or mostly from, from what I've learned from him to summarize this. There's so much in these books, and I just thought, how do I condense it? And he was so helpful in doing that. So I um, wanted to give credit to that. And so as we begin, I just want to talk a little bit, first of all, as an overview of the prophets. We talked about this with Isaiah. What is a prophet? He is a covenant enforcer. He is one who's telling Israel, you've got to be faithful to the Mosaic covenant. You've got to return to the Lord. He's reminding them of the covenant curses, the covenant blessings, and he's enforcing the covenant because over and over it's said in the prophets, right, the people are forgetting God. They're forgetting the law. They're forgetting the word. They don't know it. And God keeps sending his prophets to remind him of the word, to remind them of his revelation. When the priests fail, when the king fails, God sends his prophets and says, this is the word you need to obey. You need to return to me. They're the covenant enforcers. So specifically today looking at the minor prophets, why are they called minor? It is not because they are less important. It's not because their themes theologically are less significant. It's simply because they're shorter. It just, it's only, and we tend to think major, minor, like important, less important, but it really in this case is length. One is longer, one is shorter. Again, Dr. Chow used this um, analogy of think about airports. So I grew up in Montana. Montana is, I, mean, I but I think, don't even know if it has a million people in it yet, right? So all our airports are small, and you have to, to get anywhere, really, you're going to have to get two or three connecting flights. There aren't a whole lot of direct flights. So I grew up in Bozeman, Montana, and if you're going from Bozeman, about the only direct flight you get is to Salt Lake City. Other than that, you're going to be making multiple stops. So if you think of the minor profits as an airport, and you're at a smaller airport having a direct flight, you're going from Bozeman to Salt Lake, the minor prophets really deal with more like one issue, and they're going to deal with it in a deep way, in a significant way, but they're dealing with one issue, they're one route, versus when I went to college, I was right next to LAX, LAX International Airport, and it is a complete opposite of Bozeman Airport, right? You can get flights all over the world from LAX, you can get lost in LAX, it it's its own little nightmare, is what it is. Um, it's unbelievable, all the different flights and all the connections, so when you think about the major prophets, you can think about all of these major themes, redemptive themes interact, you know, crisscrossing. You can think about uh, multiple theological themes. It's just a major hub, a major hub where you're going to have more themes, more connections, more crisscrossing happening in those books. And so, for example, when you look at the book of Joel, 
Joel is going to be dealing with specifically a locust plague. It'd be like if you had a prophet who was going to tell us how to deal with Hurricane Katrina. It's, here's a, it's a natural disaster. He's talking about how you deal with this natural disaster in the day of the Lord. He's not looking at all of the things like Isaiah looked at with the servant who's going to come. So that's just, I felt like that was a helpful analogy for me. The minor prophets are shorter. They're more direct routes. They usually deal with fewer theological themes in a more direct way or fewer issues more specifically. But it doesn't make them any less significant. Um, some common misconceptions that we can have about the prophets would be that these books are only about judgment, right? Or that they're repetitive. But instead, think about this. Hosea is a book all about God's love. Yes, it talks about how God is going to judge them, because but it's all about God's love and bringing them back. Amos teaches us what it means that God is just. Micah is all about social justice and the corruption of the leadership. Joel is telling us how we're going to deal with natural disasters and judgment of the Lord. All these books deal with specific attributes and aspects of God as well as judgment that you can learn so much. And you know, Jonah is this book about reaching the nations, about how we're supposed to have a heart for other nations, how God has a heart to reach all over the world. There's so much we can learn about. It's not just repetitive about judgment over and over again. Um, and we can tend to think, oh, they're not relevant to us. And we've talked about this before, too, but the prophets tell us where we need to place our joy. They're telling us where we're going. They're telling us where the end of the story is, right? The day of the Lord and his ultimate, um, his ultimate reign on the earth that's going to be established. And so we talked about how, as believers, our joy is in the future. If you're an unbeliever, your joy is in the here and now. And so your joy is very transient, it's very unstable, but as believers, our joy is located in the future. So these books teach us so much about our joy as believers, about where we're going to find our hope. So they're very relevant to our life. And there's one thing as I was just thinking about just the big picture of the prophets and like, what do I hope to accomplish today? Two things I hope to accomplish. One is just to whet your appetite. They, we, we, are, we can't go, in, there's so many books, we just can't go deep enough into all of them. I just hope to whet your appetite that you think, oh, I want to come back and I want to go learn more about that in Obadiah. Or I really want to understand this better in Hosea. And I really want to, that you would want to come back and go deeper when you have the opportunity. In fact, I hope someday we do just a minor prophet study. There's so much here. They would whet your appetite about it and make you excited about it. But I also remember when I was in college, the dean of women spoke and um, actually it wasn't the dean of women, but she spoke at a different time. Anyway. She was sharing with me and the group that, you know, we would never tear the book of Nahum out of our Bibles and say, hey, we don't need that. And we would say, oh, no, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's all profitable, and it's all useful. But when we never read the book of Nahum, and we never study the book of Nahum, and when we never try to see how the book of Nahum applies to our life, we're effectively doing the same thing. And so often we don't know what to do with the prophets, and so we might as well tear them out of our Bible for how we neglect them. And so a challenge that was issued to me that I'm going to pass on to you for all of us is do we cultivate our relationship with the Lord from the minor prophets as well as other scripture? But do we ever come to them and think, how do I go deeper in my relationship with God? How can I know him more? These books were considered the, the epistles of the Old Testament. So think of how we love Galatians or Philippians and how we go to the epistles in the New Testament to know God. That's what these were for the Old Testament. We can learn so much about God. So if you leave today and you can't keep it all straight, the handout I gave you, hopefully in small group, go back to your handout, reference it. Hopefully it'll help you follow along with me today and even keep notes. But hopefully you're just more like, there's a lot to learn here. My God is great and I can learn about him in these books. One other thing I want to say before we dive in 
is just a word on the nature of prophecy. And we've talked about this, and I'm just going to be skating the surface. There's more to say about the nature of prophecy than I'm going to say now. But sometimes prophecy is confusing because we call it the mountaintop view or the collage view. So if you were looking at a mountaintop, you could maybe see two mountaintops, but you can't see the distance between them. Are they this close together? Are they that close together? How deep is the valley? And so that's how the time works. Sometimes these prophecies are just looking from one mountaintop to the another, but they're not talking about what happens in between. Because again, you have to remember the audience to which these books are written. The people in these books, like in the book of Ezekiel, which we're going to be coming to after our spring break, well, Jeremiah, then Ezekiel, but we'll be there soon, God's presence has just left the temple. They're not worried about a chronology. We want always with the prophecies to make a timeline, right? They're not worried about that. They're worried that the presence of God has left. That's what the believing remnant cares about, and that's what they have questions about. Is God's presence going to come back? What does this mean? What are the implications? The prophets teach thematically. They're teaching about the questions that were on the people's hearts, the questions about exile, the questions about God's presence, the questions about the covenant promises. And so sometimes when they're looking at these themes, you can see one mountaintop and not another, but there's a lot of distance. That's why sometimes you'll see things about Christ's first coming and his second coming in one prophecy in the same verse sometimes. Though we know this, it still hasn't been fulfilled fully yet, right? We're still waiting. There's a big gap between those two mountaintops. Another way to think about it would be a collage. If I had a collage of all the presidents and I had George Washington and Donald Trump next to each other, that would just be because they're presidents, not because they're contemporaries, not because they're similar in any way other than being presidents. And then you could have, you know, maybe there are some things, and then you put, like, Barack Obama. And it's not trying to say anything about anything but their presidents. And you could put Jefferson. And you're like, oh, is this some comment of Jefferson on slaves and Barack Obama? No, this is just about presidents, right? The collage is just about presidents. And so when you think about these prophecies, a lot of times you have to think about it that way, that you're putting themes thematically together and not try to force connections that there aren't there or even chronologies that aren't there because we're talking about the theme. So I found both of those illustrations helpful in just trying to tackle this, and I hope that they're helpful to you as well. As we go through this and on the handout, we're going to look at these books chronologically. I'm just going to say that there is some debate on some of these books chronologically, and I'm not going to go into the why scholars convinced me of this outline. <laughs> um, if you want to know, I can point you to the resources. I can tell you why. But Obadiah is the one we're going to start with, and it is one that scholars believe could either be written, written about 850 or written about 586, excuse me, either about, around 850 or 586, I believe. I was convinced by the scholarship of the earlier date. There are many really biblical scholars who believe in 586. So if they, you see some charts or timelines that put it somewhere else, it's not because they're not, you know, biblical scholars who care about, you know, in there. So I just want to put that out there. But I was convinced by Obadiah, so we're going to start there. So Obadiah. Obadiah means, his name means servant of Yahweh. And this term is actually a very special term that really only gets applied to the big name players in scripture. People like Job, David, Moses. They're the ones who are called servant of Yahweh. And to be a servant of Yahweh, you had to do two things. You had to be, bring a, be a revelation bringer, right? So like Job starts the canon. It's probably the first book ever written. Moses brings the law. David, the Davidic covenant. You had to bring revelation. And you have to advance or help accomplish part of the redemptive plan. So while we could say in a sense like all of us are servants of the Lord, when this term servant of Yahweh has worked, it does not apply to us. It is somebody who is bringing revelation, is a revelation bringer, and they're helping accomplish some of the redemptive plan. So Obadiah, as the first book, he's beginning these prophecies. In fact, if I ever teach this class again, minor prophets will come before Isaiah, right? And, and he's a source text. 
He's going to teach us some really important things that all the rest of the prophets are going to refer to him and expand on. So he mentions the day of the Lord. He doesn't say a lot about it compared to Joel or compared to you know, other prophets, but he starts it. So he's a source text that they reference and then they expand from. So what's happening in the book of Obadiah? If you, I'm going to just walk us quickly through because of time, but 2 Chronicles 21, that's the history of what's happening. Jehoram is king, 2 Chronicles 21, and Jehoram is a king of Judah, and he has married into Ahab's family. He marries Ahab's daughter. And this actually even goes back to what, what scholars like to call the Omri conspiracy. Ahab's dad had this plan. You know, we can't take over Judah, so if you can't beat him, join him. We're going to intermarry. And through intermarriage, which remember how God talked so much about not intermarriage, through intermarriage, that's how we'll take over Judah. And in fact, if you look in 2 Chronicles, about two chapters over, Athaliah, I can't remember if it's a daughter or his granddaughter, she's the queen, and she wipes out everybody from David's line but one man. She tried to get that one boy killed too, but he was saved. So it really was this conspiracy against the line of David to eradicate it. And Jehoram is playing a part in that by marrying into Ahab's line and not keeping the Davidic line distinct from the northern kingdom. And so God sends judgment, and God raises up many nations. You see in verse 16, the Philistines, the Ethiopians, the Libyans, the Arabians, and above that, he raises up Edom. And this really gets Israel's attention. And you think, why Edom? Why is Edom getting their attention when all, you know, all the other curses of Deuteronomy 28 have been happening pretty consistently? Why does this one get their attention? Because if you go back to Genesis 25, remember, you have, these two, you have the two brothers, J- Jacob and Esau. Edom is the descendant of Esau. And, you, and they're almost this divine experiment. And when you have an experiment, you have to have a control, right? So you have these two sons. And twins are basically, they have the same parents, same lineage, same, they're the same, right? As much as two people can be the same, twins are. But God chooses one and not the other. And so it becomes this control case for who what Israel, Esau basically represents what Israel would be had God not chosen them, who any of us would be if God hadn't chosen us. And so despite how bad everything gets, because of the prophecy in Genesis 25 where it says the young, you know, Esau is going to serve, the younger is going to rule over the older. Esau is going to serve Jacob, even though he was born first. No matter how bad things get, Israel has always had this, like, beat Edom card. When you're playing Monopoly, they always have the, we, tr- we, tr- we trump Edom. No matter how bad things get, Edom was always subject to, to um, Israel, but not anymore. Things are so bad, the intermarriage is so bad, now Edom has victory over you. And look in Obadiah, what is Edom doing? If you look in verse 10, he's doing violence to your brother Jacob. And if you look down in um, verse 11, he stood aloof on the day, so all these, all these people are coming, they're ravaging the land, you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried away his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. And in verse 12, it says, do not gloat over them. But when you get down to verse um, 14, it says, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So when these nations rose up, not only did Edom revolt against them, they helped these enemies defeat their brother. Remember, Jacob and Esau were brothers. You're not supposed to do this to your brother. You're not supposed to cut off the, cat, the survivors. You're not supposed to loot them. You're not supposed to... And according to the prophecy, Israel's always supposed to be dominant over you. So the, the Israelites are totally confused. Is God going to keep his promises? Is God faithful? Is, is the covenant revoked? Like, this is a major reversal, but we have, we have never experienced this. Are the covenant promises going to be true? And Obadiah comes on the scene, and he says, Edom's done this, and this is your current reality, but Edom will be judged. And now Edom is going to start standing for all the nations that in the day of the Lord, 
are going to be judged. I'm going to use Assyria. I'm going to use Babylon. I'm going to use many nations to refine you and to bring you to repentance. But they will not escape judgment. They will be judged for what they've done. My ultimate, my covenant promises will come to pass. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations, and as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head, right? For you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and shall be called holy. I'm going to preserve my remnant. I'm going to bring them to my mountain. I am going to rule. And we see in verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule over Mount Esau, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So much more. We could do the whole lecture today on this. I did spend more time on here because it is the first one. And so this idea of the tension between Jacob and Esau, it plays out through the prophets. And, and this idea, though, too, that God is going to judge the nations, that ju the, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. They will not escape. But you're disobedient, and you're going to have to repent, Israel. But ultimately, the day of the Lord will come and judge the nations, and ultimately... I will rule from my mountain, and the nations will come to me, and you, the remnant, will be preserved. Okay, Obadiah. Now we're on to Joel. Joel means Yahweh is God, and he emphasizes the power of God and restoration. Joel is basically an exposition on Deuteronomy 28. The curses are coming. One of the curses was locusts. Here come the locusts, just like Deuteronomy 28 said. You have been. It was. They were real locusts. It was a literal plague. They really destroyed the land. The locusts have come, and this should tell you that if the locusts are coming, guess what? The next thing that's going to come is exile. Exile is coming. But if you want to survive the day of the Lord, if you want to survive, because he's going to start explaining the day of the Lord in more detail. What does it mean? What is this judgment? What's going to happen to the nations? But if you want to survive it, Israel, read Joel 2, 12 through 14 with me. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing. Do you see he calls him to repentance, and repentance based on the character of God. And this character of God, it's exactly what the Lord declared to Moses, right, in Exodus 34. And the prophets, the minor prophets as a whole, pull on that revelation of God from, Isaiah, from Exodus 24. They expound on the basic theological confession that God is slow to anger, he is abounding in steadfast love, and he is a God who forgives or who relents over disaster. And we're going to see over and over and over again in the prophets. The day of the Lord is coming. You want to be a survivor? Repent and belong to God. Right? Be, repent and turn to him. Then Joel goes on, and he says, even though this day is going to happen, even though there's this judgment, there's going to be a restoration. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that it's a material restoration. I'm going to give you back your land. I'm going to give you back your possessions. And then jumping back, actually, to 228, we see it's a spiritual restoration. My spirit, I'm going to pour my Holy Spirit on you. The Holy Spirit is going to come. I'm going to give you my spirit. And we also see that it's a national restoration. Judah and Israel will be in the land, and their king will be in their midst, and he will rule. So the day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be judgment on the whole earth. But if you repent, you can, escape. You can be that believing remnant. You can be there, and I'm going to restore you. We so often focus on the judgment in these books, but every book closes with this promise of restoration, this promise of hope, and a reminder that he is a God who is slow to anger. That takes us back to Jonah. Jonah is next. Jonah 
means dove, which actually in Hebrew, without going into the wordplay, kind of means stupid, which doesn't that kind of, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but um, it's also kind of true. Jonah's not maybe the brightest of the prophets, because God gives him a message, and he says, go repent, and Jonah says, yeah, I'm going to go the other way. And this is also, just a side note, maybe a reason not to think that an open door always means God's will. I mean, Jonah didn't have any problem getting a ticket and getting on a ship going the wrong way, right? So... Sometimes we're like, oh, open door means God wants me to walk through. Not necessarily, especially when he's told you to go through a different door, (laughs) especially when he told you to go that way. So Jonah runs from God, and what Jonah is, and when you come to the book of Jonah, you could, I almost, this may be going too far, but you could almost substitute Jonah for Israel. Jonah represents the nation of Israel. He becomes the person who symbolizes Israel. He's a prophet during a time of Israel's prosperity. And Israel wasn't supposed to take their prosperity and just keep it to themselves and be like, yay, we're God's chosen ones. Look at the blessings coming on us. They were supposed to reach the nations, right? They were supposed to go and tell the world about their God, and they don't want to. And Jonah is such a racist, like, he would rather all of Nineveh perish than that he go preach repentance to them. But God sends him to Nineveh. You cannot escape the Lord. And so even though Jonah is rebellious, God still uses him, just like Israel's rebellious, and God still uses him. And so Jonah goes, and he preaches repentance, and look at the end of Jonah 4 with me. I just, I love this, and it rebukes me every time. He's waiting, but it pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, he said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Like, I was right, God. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a God gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He is so convinced in his heart that this is the character of his God, that he believed Nineveh would repent. I mean, how many times do you go into evangelism, or think of missions, and think, this is who my God is, and have that kind of confidence? And yet, that confidence, in this case, Jonah used it for the wrong reason. But I just thought, man, like he ran because he was so sure of God's forgiving character. So sure of his mercy. And he, he... was so evil he didn't want that repentance but am i that sure of god's character am i that confident in his mercy and his forgiveness and then look how great is god look in verse nine but god said to jonah do you do well to be angry for the plant and this just reminds me of my kids and jonah said yes i do well to be angry enough to die i'm like oh, you little petulant child like okay i want to die because you did this And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God has mercy on the animals, like, and the cattle. Just in case you didn't think he was, he cared about the animals that would have perished. He cared about those who didn't know their right from their left. Shouldn't he be that merciful? And then expounding on that mercy, this Nineveh really represents Assyria. They're one of the great um, cities of Assyria and leaders of Assyria. Guess who's going to come in and wipe out God's people pretty soon? The Assyrians. God is preaching forgiveness to his enemies, to the very people who are going to come and take his people captive. We learn so much about who God is, his mercy, his heart for the nations, and the minor prophets. That's who, that's who our God is. Well, this takes us to Amos. Again, if you're getting lost, follow the note at the handout. <laughs> um, sorry, it is a lot. But Amos, his, his argument is that God's just never, justice never crosses the line. God is always just, but he never goes beyond his justice. And he starts in Amos 1 through 3 by saying, God saying, like, I'm going to judge this nation for this. And this, we saw that in the lesson. List the nations and what they're being judged for. And the argument is kind of like, if I can judge all these nations for their sins, Judah, I can judge you too. 
Like, you're not exempt. And then if you turn to Amos chapter 7, he has this vision of the Lord judging Israel. And then in verse, end of verse 2, he says, oh, Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be. And then again, he sees another judgment of fire. And he says, Lord, please cease. It's too much. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And in verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this. God says, he gives that image of a plumb line. I measure out just the exact amount and just the exact amount and just the exact amount of judgment, but I never go too far. When, if he's never going to quench that remnant. He's never going to destroy it. And God is just, not just because he gives punishment to the wicked, but if you turn over to chapter 9, verse 11, because he remembers his covenant promises. He remembers his promises. And again, we end with this picture of restoration. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old. Who's going to raise up? He's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He's going to bring the Davidic king, the seed that we're all hoping for. That they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And then he comes back down. There's so much, but it says, I will restore, verse 14, the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land. Never again. They're never again going to be pulled out of this land that I give them, says the Lord your God. He's going to remember his covenant promises. He's going to remember all that he said. And note, we're going to talk about when we get to Micah. Note that he describes David as a booth. That's a picture. A booth was another word for tent. Because he's basically saying that the line of David, they're back in the wilderness. That's why he's a booth. But we'll, we'll pull that together when we come to Micah. Okay, so Hosea. Hosea is next. Hosea is all about God's love and judgment. God's judgment is itself an act of love. And he gives the beautiful picture of a husband and wife, that analogy, right, that Hosea represents God, Gomer represents Israel, and God loves Gomer like a husband loves a wife, but she is playing the whore, God says. He uses very graphic language. She's a prostitute. She leaves him. She runs from him. And God is jealous for her love. And it's a right picture of this jealousy. If you think of a husband and wife and you think about their love, the wife should love a husband in a way she loves no other man. And if she shows and gives that love to another man, not only is it adultery, but if the husband was jealous for her and wanted her exclusively, that would be right. That would be because he loves her, right? God has this jealous love for Israel. They're not supposed to be idolatrous. They're not supposed to be running after other nations. He's not going to share Israel with others. He has a jealous love for them. And so even his judgment to send them into exile will eventually lead in restoration of a right relationship with him because he loves them that much. So God's judgment is loving. God is going to chase Israel down. And again, if you look in 14, um, Hosea 14, what is God going to do to them when they return? I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel, and he shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the new grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. He's going to restore them. He's going to have this beautiful, right relationship with them. This takes us to Micah. Micah, his name means who is like Yahweh. And he ha is preaching against the social corruption and un in social injustice and the corruption of the leaders of Israel. They are, they are evil, they are wicked. We saw so much of this in the book of Isaiah. 
I'm not going to go into detail with that. Just remember all the judgments that Isaiah said they should go into, into judgment for. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. They were prophets at the same time. And while Isaiah was in, probably in the palace doing most of his prophesying, Micah was a street preacher. So all the ways that we talked about the leadership being corrupt, Micah's preaching this injustice and saying, when you turn to Micah 6, we probably all know this. You probably all sang it as a song years ago. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And this is not what the leadership is doing, right? They're proud. They are lifted up. They pervert justice. They do not walk with God. But we also learn a lot about the king in the book of Micah. Turn with me to Micah 1, 10, and it says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Bethel Aphra, t- um, roll yourselves in the dust. Remember that phrase, tell it not in Gath? When we looked at the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, David sang a lament over the house of Saul. Saul and Jonathan die, and David sang, tell it not in Gath. And it says it was written in the book of Yashir. And I said to you guys, this would have been very familiar to them, like our nursery rhymes are familiar to us. Like we have Mary had a little lamb, they have tell it not in Gath. They would have all known this. And, it w- and they would have known that this means the king, that, like, the king has died. This is the worst news for the kingdom. Only instead of right now this being over the house of Saul, it's over the house of David. And God is saying, David is done. Like from a human perspective, and we're going to see this when we get to Jeremiah, the last king that rules before the exile, God curses him and says, may you never have a son sit on the throne. So wait, the Davidic line that all the hope is coming through, God curses and God says your son can't sit on the throne? But that's exactly what has to happen for the Davidic king t- to rule. Like, all our hope is in this, and you just cursed it. And it wasn't some human, but it was God who did this. And here we have Micah saying, yep, tell it not in Gath, the Davidic line, it's done. And then it even says, if you go to verse 15, it says, I will br- again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants from Merash, and the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam was where a cave that Dave hit, David hid in in the wilderness. Okay, so the Davidic line, they're back in the wilderness. Here again is how Dr. Chow described this, and I thought it was super helpful. Imagine we're scuba diving, and you have all of your equipment. You have your oxygen tank, your line to breathe, you have your goggles, your flippers, your dry suit, and somebody cuts your line. You really still have everything you need in place to go scuba diving. You just need a replacement line, right? Everything else is there. All the the promise of the covenant are in effect, but they won't work without that line being fixed. From human terms, the Davidic line has been cursed and died. But from God's perspective and with God's power, when we get to the book of Matthew, he's going to resurrect the line. He's going to replace the line and resurrect it, literally. And that's why David is, and we, that's why, uh, remember how everyone was so confused that Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem because the king should be born in Jerusalem? Jesus is born in Bethlehem because David, God is starting it all over again. He's starting the Davidic line over again. He's going to succeed in every way that David failed. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, and he's going to go out to the wilderness, because remember the we're back in Adullam, and he's going to get tested in the wilderness by Satan, and in all the ways that David failed in the wilderness, Jesus is going to succeed. So this is this little teaser for next year. But he's going to literally resurrect the line, be the replacement line to make the Davidic covenant work. So D- Micah is telling us from a human perspective, we are lamenting the death. This is serious news. But Micah also tells us, when we get to Micah 5, But you, O Bethlehem of Prophah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. There is going to be a God-man, right, who's going to resurrect and who's going to fix this line. And we also see 
when we get to the end, in 7.17, God's going to judge the nations. It says, they shall lick the dust like the serpent. Allusion back to Genesis 3.15, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall return in dread to the Lord their God. They shall be in fear of you. Why? Because who is like you? Who is like God? Sorry. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He's going to preserve the remnant. He is going to forgive because there is no God like our God. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Do you hear Exodus 34 in this? He delights in steadfast love. He does not keep his anger forever. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from the days of old. So again, things look really bleak from a human perspective, but God has power over this. This brings us to Nahum. Nahum means comfort. And we're a few generations after the people in Nineveh who repented. Now we're a generation of Assyrians who have not repented. And God says, the key verse here is in verse 1-3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and he will by no means clear the guilty. Assyria, you're guilty. You're guilty of grievous sins against my people, and I will judge you. And Israel, you can have comfort because you know that I don't clear the guilty. And I will curse those who curse you. And I will judge the nations who were more evil than you and did evil to you. Look what I'm doing to Assyria. God keeps his promises. And then Zephaniah means God hides. And in Zephaniah, we look at the refining power of God's judgment that's going to produce a hidden jewel. Turn to um, chapter 2, verse 3 of Zephaniah. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so it's a picture here that those who repent, that those who wait on the Lord, even in judgment, because now he's going to go into the day of the Lord, he's going to explain what the day of the Lord's going to do, but they can be hidden, and that's going to produce, that the judgment's going to refine them and produce a treasure. It's going to produce a hidden jewel. But before he explains what that jewel is, he explains the day of the Lord, and he gives imagery that's similar to the flood. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 9, and 12 through 13, that this day of the Lord is going to rejuvenate the world. We also see that there's going to be a new conquering of the world, a new conquest in which Israel is going to possess the land. And then in 314 through 15, 17, excuse me, we see that this day of the Lord, this judgment, this refining, it's going to cause purification in Israel. Read, it. let's go back, let's go up to, well, we'll just read parts of all those verses I mentioned. Verse 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. He's going to change their hearts. He's going to, remember out of the heart the house speak, mouth speaks, he's going to change their nature that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And then we see in verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. God's going to change them. And when he does that, what's going to happen? They're going to have this hidden jewel of joy. And we see this in what right here, starting in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Result, rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. I mean, there's so much in that sentence, right? The Davidic covenant, is, the God is with you. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And this is the only time this is said about God. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's the only time it says that God sings. This joy is so great. This purification is so wonderful. God is going to sing over his people, the hidden jewel of God's judgment. And then we're going to close with Habakkuk. And yes, there are more prophets, but there are prophets that chronologically fit with Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to teach them with Ezra and Nehemiah. So the last prophet before the exile is Habakkuk. And Habakkuk cries out to God because he sees great evil in Judah. And he says, God, like, why are you ignoring this evil, right? Look how bad we are. And God says, oh, I'm not ignoring it. I'm sending the Babylonians. <laughs> whoa, whoa, that's not the answer I was looking for, Lord. Like, I didn't think you were going to send people who were worse than us to judge us. And Habakkuk has a problem that many of us has. Again, Dr. Chow says, Habakkuk knows the plan, but sometimes it's hard to go through the plan, right? Faithful people struggle at times with understanding God's plan, accepting it, and reconciling it with all that they know. But in the process of praying through all of it, they actually advance God's plan. We might know if we got a cancer diagnosis that God is going to use it for good. It doesn't mean we want to go through cancer. It doesn't mean we want to die. That's the ultimate end of the cancer, right? Habakkuk knows that the plan is exile from Deuteronomy 28. It doesn't mean he wants to go through exile or it's easy for him. And we see how identifiable the, identifiable the prophets are with who we are. And so we can learn so much for him because he cries out to God, and through that, he learns God's plan. He says, I'm going to send the Babylonians, but don't worry. I'm also, again, just like with Edom, I'm going to judge the Babylonians for what they do to you. But there's also a big picture that's happening here. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Where did Abraham come from? Abraham came from Ur of Chaldea. Just like David's going back to the beginning, Israel in exile is going back to the beginning. I'm taking you back to the Chaldeans. We're going to have a major restart, okay? You're going back to the Chaldeans. And then look, the key verse is in 2-4. God gives him a vision, and he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. In Genesis 15, you guys remember, that's when Abraham gets the Abrahamic covenant. Listen as I read. God's talking to Abraham, and he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Oh God, what will you give me? For I will continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. As you started, so shall you finish. Remember in Genesis, we said Abraham laid the foundation, the values for the nation, and the first one was faith. You have to be a nation of faith. You're going back where you started from, and just like you, Abraham entered this covenant by faith, it was counted as righteousness. If you want to come out of exile and you want to be in the covenant, you have, the righteous shall live by faith. And Habakkuk closes where I hope we all close. He closes with trust in God. He knows the Babylonians are coming. He knows that he's going into exile. And now he knows the way ex out of exile is to have faith in his God. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield, the fields yield no fruit, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. I will trust the Lord. So Israel, you're going into exile, but the faithful will have, they will live by their faith, right? The just will live by faith. 
they will trust God to bring them out to preserve the remnant to keep the covenant promises. So I hope that today I've at least whet your appetite to realize there's a lot in the prophets. I know we covered that quickly. Thank you for your attention. And let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who's slow to anger, who's abounding in steadfast love, who will not clear the guilty, but who does give forgiveness of sins. And we pray that we be women of faith, women who know your character and who trust in your character. And that would produce great fruit in our lives, fruit that blesses our families, blesses our churches, and brings you glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.